2: Tune in to On The Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You heard them.
1: Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to
3: Uncorking Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to S.E. Boyd. S.E. Boyd is the creation of veteran journalists Kevin Alexander and Joe Cohane and editor Alessandra Lusardi. All lightly damaged Catholics prone to extensive overanalysis, Alexander. Cohane and Lusardi have, between them, authored four books, edited dozens more, and written for Esquire, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker, among others. Alexander also won a James Beard Award for food writing, a fact Cohane and Lusardi are both tired of hearing about. They join me today to talk about their debut novel, The Lemon. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, everybody. Thank you. Thanks. Thank, thank to be you here. for having us. And here we are. So I'm going to ask you the questions uh, that I ask everybody at the beginning of this, and I'll ask you to answer individually, uh, maybe starting with Alessandra. Um, Alessandra, where does your story as a writer and editor begin?
2: Um, well, I've been uh, been an editor for over 20 years now, uh, specifically a book editor. Uh, I was in-house for about uh, 10 or 12 of those years, mainly at um, Viking, um, and since then, um, I you know left about ten years ago, and since then have kind of done the independent thing. And uh, I guess where my story, as part of S.E. Boyd, begins is um, is through Kevin. Uh, <clears throat> we we met a while ago when he was you know just starting to kind of uh, think about the idea for his first book. Um, so we just sort of talked because we had a friend in common who who put us together. Um, and yeah, and then we just kept talking about nonfiction, his subsequent book, we started working together on um, some of his writing, Um, and then I met Joe, um, through Kevin, obviously, and uh, we kind of, you know, I think that's where maybe one of the other guys should, should jump in, um, because from then on, it sort of becomes like a threes company
3: situation. Yeah. Well before we get into the uh the threes company situation, um uh and hopefully you guys spent some time in the Regal Beagle when you were penning this, but um <laughs> Kevin
2: versions of the Regal Beagle.
3: Yeah. All right. Kevin, how about you? Where does uh, where does your story as an author begin?
4: <clears throat> well, I was born in nineteen eighty one in Houston. No. Um So I would say uh, it really started, I was a a journalist at Boston Magazine um, and when I was in my early 20s, uh, while I was getting my MFA in creative writing at Emerson College, really important to note that I'm the only one with the MFA. What's that Uh, stand for, by the way? I don't know. It doesn't matter. (laughs) But... and that's where Joe and I first met. We were both at Boston Magazine. And then, um, yeah, then I moved on sort of in digital media. I was working at Thrillist as a national writer at large and writing for magazines. And then just kind of moved over into the book world uh, in the nonfiction space, writing about food uh, and co-writing memoir. And, and this kind of crazy Boyd idea came about. So uh, that's where
3: my writing story begins all right um and uh over to you joe um where does your story begin as a writer
0: yeah i sort of got the bug for it um freshman year in college became interested in in actually reading which is something i never really did with any seriousness in high school um got out of college started writing columns for an alt-weekly newspaper in boston called the dig and then after two years of that, I actually took the paper over, so I ran it as editor in chief for four years. Went to Boston Magazine to write as like a city columnist. Started freelancing for national magazines and things like that. Um, that's where I met Kevin at Boston Magazine, which is a really great group of people who have all gone on to do pretty great things. Uh, moved to New York, and have since worked for Medium, Esquire. You know, written for everybody. Um, but I've been a journalist the whole time, dividing my time between editing and writing. So this is the first um, piece of fiction I've worked on besides some truly shamefully shitty short fiction from my early twenties, which like mercifully <laughs> went down in a hard drive crash because I don't want that <laughs> shit floating
3: around. Um, it, it, could be yeah, it could be recovered with the right tech resource. So you know, <laughs> oh, God. be careful. I, I, I want to find it L
0: through the computer, it's very <laughs> angsty.
1: Um, yep. But yeah, Kevin
0: and I worked together at Boston Magazine. And then when I was at Esquire, we wrote together there. And then I was brought in to Thrillist for a while, where I was his editor there on some of the longer form stuff. So the you know the aforementioned Beard Award, I edited that with him and we did a lot of fun stuff.
3: Joe, I have to ask, is that a Telecaster behind uh, your, your right shoulder?
0: Yeah, that's a the Telecaster. That's a um, Mexican Telecaster that I got six months ago that is like freakishly nice. It and it's just one of those things where it, you never know what you're gonna get when you pick up anything made by Fender. Sometimes the expensive ones are terrible and the cheap ones are good, but this is a cheap one that's actually amazingly good. It's, it's a, a great a, guitar.
3: A good Mexican telly. Does, does it ever come off the wall or is it just there? Oh for... yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah.
4: He, Joe was a, a musician that he failed to mention that in the mix. Uh, that was actually the thing that he's good at. Um, and so uh, he was sort of dabble, at... dabbling with the writing on the side, but but mainly being a musician.
0: I'm also very good at parallel parking. I yeah. think I'm probably the best in America at parallel parking. Certainly so <laughs> better than Kevin.
4: Unconfirmed.
3: That that didn't come through in the research I was doing, but uh, <laughs> who, who, which come one? see, come come and see. I'll show you something. Which one of you would like to uh, just give me an overview <laughs> of uh, how this project came about, how S.E. Boyd came to be? Joe,
4: Joe, you want to take it, or yeah. Alessandra?
3: I thought you were going to take it.
0: Why don't you take it?
4: Oh, I don't can know. i take We take were it. texting about this like five God, minutes ago. David, stop it. So, God, um, we've already no,
0: hit the rocks. We're like, sorry, Mike. We're normally
4: day. so good at this. Um, no, I
3: can tell. Go ahead.
4: Yeah. So, uh, basically, it, it started one night at our friend Joaquin's bar, uh, R.I.P. Pouring Ribbons. Um, we were there. I was in New York, uh, where both of these uh folks live, and we were out getting a drink. And, you know, I was friends with both of them, but they didn't really know each other at the time. And bringing them together, uh, Alessandra had told a story that I won't say exactly what it was, but a piece of it uh, ends up in the book. And we immediately started to riff, like the three of us, on, uh, you know, takes on that. And it'd be funny. And our litterage and David Granger was there as well. And he was uh, bored. Uh, by our conversation and all our riffing and just looking for the bartender to order another drink and then get out of there. Um, But yeah, that's, I think we like immediately noticed that we all sort of share the same sense of humor and our ability to kind of play off of each other really started to coalesce, I would say that night. And then as, you know, this, uh, both Joe and I had nonfiction book projects that we were working on and this really came about as a procrastination tool during those nonfiction projects and alessandra was working with me on mine and so it just became this thing of like oh well what if this what if that and soon all of a sudden we were we were working together in earnest
3: so so alessandra you're working with kevin as as an Mm -hmm. editor presumably uh, on this project when he came to you with this idea i mean what was your initial reaction i mean were you like is are you trying to get out of this uh, other thing you're working with me on or what was (laughs) (laughs) that?
2: Well, I, I, you know, my, my duty, uh, as his editor at that moment was to keep saying, all right, Kev, but you know, that, you know, we've got, we've got a chapter due on Friday or whatever, you know, like, uh, to kind of keep him focused. But the idea was just so good. And so kind of just, there's just so much there. And, um, the, you know, we haven't really talked about the content of the lemon so much yet, but it is set in the world of, you know, food and celebrity, fine dining. Um, And I, my family has a restaurant background. Um, My, uh, my parents opened up a restaurant in New York 40 years ago, which is still open. Uh, My brother went into the business. There have been other places open since then. And so the whole sort of foodie culture element of lemon is something that i felt very very deeply and have a lot of thoughts about so kevin would tell me about you know this idea that he and joe started kicking around and i had many thoughts so you know when they started really getting it down in earnest um i was just really interested to be part of those conversations and then it sort of formalized uh from there Um, yeah. And I don't know, Joe, do you want to talk about how the idea for the women started? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, yeah. So we were, you know, the obvious parallel that a lot of people draw is um, the death of Anthony Bourdain because our, our story starts off with a food world celebrity who's beloved for his authenticity. He's a TV host. He's a bartender. So, you know, uh, obviously Bourdain was a chef. Our guy whose name is John Doe is a bartender. Um, but we we're really fascinated by the aftermath of the death of Bourdain. Um, which mirrors the aftermath of a lot of celebrity deaths where you have the original shock, you have the original outpouring of grief, um, but then you start to see this maneuvering happening around the edges that we found was really interesting and, and you know, at some point sort of shameful of people like trying to get a piece of it, right? And this could even be people on social media, just trying to show that they at some point had some proximity or that they had something in common with this person or they met him once or whatever it is, like everyone who's ever had any contact with the deceased Will let everyone know about that contact, however, fleeting in the aftermath of a death. So it becomes like both, you know, a genuine outpouring of grief, but also like a little an exercise in brand building. Um, an exercise in status competition, that sort of stuff. And then on a deeper level, sometimes if it creates like a vacuum, like the death of our character does, you know, like his seat as the host of a very popular show is now, is now vacant people start to maneuver, people start to maybe I can get some money off of this, or maybe I can save my flagging career by stepping into this role. Maybe I can use my contacts with his people to get closer to whatever the magic was that made it work for him. And maybe that can work for me. So we, we get really interested in that. Kevin coined the phrase, um, I'm loathe to give him credit for anything, but it's a pretty good phrase. <laughs> uh, the celebrity death industrial complex, which is just the machine that kicks into motion after a beloved celebrity dies. Um, and seeing the ripples go out and seeing everyone jockeying for position um, and the uncomfortable overlap between genuine emotion and then just like crass opportunism. Um, that was sort of the the engine of it in a lot of ways was just those sorts of, you know, those sorts of uncomfortable, the uncomfortable reality surrounding a death like that. Um, yeah. And then we just, you know, we had that as the core idea and we just created our characters around that.
3: Well, I'm glad you weren't inspired by Jeffrey Epstein. I'll just say that. <laughs> yeah. that, that would have been a very creepy book to write.
4: Joe uh, pitched that, but we we shut that oh, down. Yeah. Thing.
3: Well, you know he, he doesn't have the MFA that you have. Uh, Kevin. Yeah.
4: Well, yeah. He, he didn't know what, what what he was looking at.
3: Doesn't I have. Just... <laughs> Go ahead, I Joe. Gonna, I was gonna say I snuck
0: Epstein was murdered in the margins of one of the pages. And yeah, no as knows. an as an across. But now nice. yeah, it's 100 page <laughs> thir- page 133,
3: uh, left hand side. <laughs> and then who's so. laughing after that? <laughs> but you, i mean you know you 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 know the, this the inspiration is is um the death of anthony bourdain yet i mean the book is a is a comedy right i mean is this what was that a conscious choice to make this a comedy
4: um i don't think it was a conscious choice i just think when we are writing our nature is to write sort of with an eye towards the humor of a situation but not trying to be funny right so it's I've always been like painfully uh, repelling books that fall into the the humor category, right? Like books that are funny for for funny's sake. Um, I find those infuriating and 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 very not funny. But we always like telling stories that have a bit of edge, that have you know uh, some suspense and 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 other sort of uh, knives uh, sticking out. But one of those knives is, you know, like cutting humor. And um, and so I think that uh, it's, for some reason I was thinking of like Edward Scissorhands in that uh, context, but um, so yeah. So I, I think that's just the nature of the way that we write. It's like, there's going to be elements of funny and absurd because we find sort of these situations and the real life foodie situations, funny and absurd. And you can like almost play it straight and it reads like comedy because it is that like dumb and like unrealistic. And these people are that sort of grandiose.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: I think we also like the book in some way, and we definitely talked about this. We didn't explicitly plan it to be a comedy, um, but we definitely have very little patience for self-serious writing and self-serious writers. We all hate the idea that writing has to be an exercise in isolation and pain and masochism. Yeah. We always laugh when like writers were on Twitter being like this is so hard to do. It's just like, oh dig ditches. Like there are so many things that are so much harder than writing. So we really wanted it to be number one really energetic, like something we really like to read. We wanted it to be as entertaining as possible. Um, we wanted to have story and character like all the moving parts that make something really readable. Um, But I think we also, in a way, wanted to demonstrate that, like, this doesn't have to be an exercise in torment, like writing can be really fun, you know, it's, it's challenging in its way for sure. But, but just to like really um, put the throttle down and just write something that's really animated and really entertaining and hopefully clears some sort of literary threshold, um, or else Kevin's money is going to have been wasted on his MFA.
4: Exactly. (laughs) But no, I mean, to, you know, to bring up the MFA, which I'd I'd like to, again, uh, which I have. Stand for? Um, now, again, do not sure. But the um, <laughs> in my program, there was so much of that sort of like self-conscious posturing around the literary and the painful. Mm-hmm. And it was it, it was actually excruciating. And Joe and I were working together at the time. And I remember uh, going out for a beer with him. And he was like, what do you, what do you think? You know, cause he was like toying around with, with writing and he was like, is, is this worth it? And I was like, no, it's not. Uh, you know, meanwhile, I'm like 140 grand deep into this program, but, um, it was like, it just, you, you just saw so much of this sort of like, like the need to posture around it being pain and it being literary in quotes. And, and when and when you kind of like free yourself from that uh and realize that if you just write sort of in an interesting way things that people want um that's much better and uh and so hopefully that's what we did yeah
2: Yeah. and it's seeing it from the uh the publishing house point of view you know early on in my career in editorial as an editorial assistant assistant editor you're in these um weekly editorial meetings with the whole staff when you you know bring up new submissions that have come in and you know you say you get this literary novel from a you know person with an mfa from you know really reputable place and you know emerson it's got you know and and it's and it's it's beautiful you know It's, it's 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 calibrated and it's you know it's the craft of it is really there and but it feels bloodless and and so you'd I personally as a young editor I would you know prepare this kind of this little pitch that I would bring to the meeting about how beautiful the novel was and all of its merits and then someone you know an older experienced editor would always say but did you like it and then i would be you know at first when this this first was happening i'd be like shit i did not prepare for that question (laughs) you know because it was like well my brain liked it because i'm regarding this as some kind of intellectual exercise and i don't know why it took me forever to to actually realize that in book publishing like you like you've got to listen to other parts (laughs) um so that's really i think what drew me to the way these two write i mean not only are there you know having been trained as journalists for as long as they were i mean it's it's incredible how quickly they can get stuff done and that alone is just so much fun because you're not sitting there tortured um, kind of trying to express an idea and you know if it doesn't work you just stop and you try something else um, but also the idea that like well if I'm not enjoying this I like let's what what's the point you know so they can take on the assignment and complete it but what's the point of doing it if it's not actually fun
3: well, I want to I want to talk about sort of the process of sort of co-writing this. Um, because I know just writing individually has its own challenges. Writing with other people, I'm sure does as well. In a way, I'm I'm wondering, and, and Alessandro, you you invoked Three's company earlier, <laughs> um, which brings to me this idea of like a writer's room. Um, was this yeah. more like, yeah. you know, writing individually, or is this more like writing, you know, I, I don't want to say sitcom, but like being in a writer's room working in TV?
2: absolutely writer's room yeah
3: well it's start I mean it obviously it starts
4: individually right so you we would but I guess that they do that in tv as well so it's like you know you get assignments so it's like we uh, would each take a character and we'd talk about what the idea for the chapter would be and then we go off and write bring it to the others get feedback sort of uh, you know in margins on a Google Doc, comments, comments, cut this, like punch this up, blah 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 blah, uh, do rewrites. And then on Fridays we'd all kind of like coalesce around like, okay, well, where are we at? What's worked? when where are we going next week? So everyone eventually by the end of the week had their hands on everything. Um, but sort of Joe and I would sort of, you know peel away, put stuff forward and then Alessandra would give notes, but then we'd all all give notes. Alessandra would start writing, like, you know what I mean? So everyone was touching it at all points. Um, but it was also, what was great about that, aside from how quick you could get things done, is, you know, Joe and I and, and Alessandra were competitive. And so if Joe would turn in a chapter that I thought was really, really good, and, you know, I wouldn't tell him that obviously, um, I would go back and be like, crap, like now I have to make this this much better. Like, I can't just turn in schlock uh, Mm -hmm. if, you know, he's putting something out like that. And the other beauty of it is that when you see someone else's brain in the book and you're like, I would have never thought of like saying those things or putting those into the character. um, And then you get to take credit for it because, you know, all of us are, are technically, you know, we could have all written any of it. So um I, I just love that being surprised by something that one of the others came up with that one of them wrote that I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, that's incredible that uh, that you thought of that. I would have never gone that way. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that that was really interesting.
3: And maybe yeah. because they don't they don't have MFA's. Um, is why they could come up with certain things,
4: yeah. They have sort of a a more uh proletariat uh view, sort of a working class idea of literature, and I thought that that was just adorable of them. And uh,
0: their stubby stubby little hands, yeah, yeah. But the other, other, your calloused mitts, the other great thing about it though is that, like, I think the reason why I never even attempted fiction, besides the fact that it's impossible to make a living off of it virtually, um, is that you just you write something and then it's like a year before you show it to somebody yeah because you can't I mean you can kind of ask your friends to read your novel though like no one really but that's yeah
4: no one wants that but you have to have
0: something substantive before you show them you can't just show them something every week and our process just externalized that um so you would write a chapter and you'd get feedback within 48 hours yeah um, which was great so if you got if you you know everybody wants a little bit of praise if if the other two liked it that felt good but also they were just on the job so anything that didn't land in your version in your your draft of it, like now you're pitching on it, and that's another mm-hmm. you know that's another TV thing, which yeah. is when people are going through a script, um, any writer can basically ask, can we pitch on this? And then everyone will just pitch to see if you can get it better. Mm-hmm. Either it's if it's a bit of characterization, if it's a joke, um, a bit of storytelling, whatever it is. So not only did you get instantaneous feedback, but you also had the opportunity to fix it really quickly. Um, yeah. That made it really fun, but it also just like kept the existential despair at bay because you weren't just sitting on it alone forever you
3: know but you kind of walked right into my next question which is you know obviously when you are writing individually you know you might only be sending it to you know an agent or, or maybe an editor depending on how you're publishing kind of towards the end of the process but but with your process you're you're getting feedback i want to say in real time but but sort of as as the project is is moving along how did that impact You know, once it went to the publisher, the publishing side of things, um, was there an external editor involved there as well? And how did that change the timeline for publication? Alessandro, you want that one? Yeah, um,
2: there was, we had an incredible editor um, who coincidentally, uh, Viking, my old imprint, um, were the ones who came in and bought it. And our editor, Ibrahim Ahmad at viking was just like we we could not have found the better let's say mr roper mr (laughs) furley mrs roper um, metaphor to to complete i'm trying to larry he's definitely gonna listen to this so
4: uh, (laughs) (laughs) i like mrs roper for him mrs
2: roper Yeah. yeah um but he was wonderful i mean he totally got what you know what we were going for with the voice and the tone and the, the the pacing of it um and you know the the ideas that we were trying to kind of put forth in a fun way and he knew exactly how to flag what wasn't working and um you know sometimes would suggest alternatives or fixes sometimes would just kick it back and say this fix it you know like what like why this answer me this question and fix it um And as far as the timeline aspect of it, I mean, we did what guys, like how many, how many rounds did we do with Ibrahim? Like maybe three or four. We went, we had like four notes discussions and he would read and very, you know, very rarely would it take him longer than like two weeks to respond, which is amazing for an in-house editor. Oh, yeah. um, and I think, you know, I, I like to think it's because we were his fun book, you know? We <laughs> were uh, also an an easy, roster.
0: We we're, were pretty easy to edit for him because you had already edited the book. <clears throat> so yeah. the editing process yeah. with him yeah. was not a structural editing process. Right. Like the structure of the book held and remained pretty consistent. Um, but there were you know gaps and problems with story and, and inconsistencies inconsistencies. So we never we weren't in a position where we had to rewrite it.
1: Right, um, so right. that made it yeah. easier
0: for everybody. but but Ibrahim is the uh, the absolute greatest. The guy was he's so talented. he's so smart, he was wonderful to work with.
3: I mean, mm-hmm. you, you all bring different skills to the table, different different career backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, clearly. <laughs> um, how, did, how did you ensure as kind of working as a team and each taking different pieces, how did you ensure that you kept one voice throughout the novel and, and how much of a challenge was that? It it was, sho- <laughs> it
4: it was shockingly not challenging. Uh mostly because we we have a similar voice. I, yeah. Joe and I have collaborated on so many things. Um and we, you know, we come from a similar place and we have similar speech patterns and um, that it all kind of coalesced uh, rather organically and, and and Alessandra kind of stepped in and, um, you know, had the same. And, and, and I think it comes from our familiarity with each other and just like the way that we all sort of... Yeah speak and write. And, um, and I, of I thought set that oh, sorry, cultural
2: yeah. references too. you know, we're all from the Northeast. These guys are from Boston. I'm, these guys are Irish Catholics from Boston. Mm-hmm. I am an Italian Catholic from New York. Um, and so we kind of understand those sort of communities and their similarities and the people that come out of them. Um, and, you know, we all love 80s sitcoms clearly but i'm sorry to have cut you off kevin
4: oh, no, no, but it was a fine. lot of
2: cutting off you know it's because we because we like to finish each other's sentences
0: and not you know uh-huh. not let exactly. them... i was I like to actually stop kevin's
3: sentences i'm not finishing them
0: i'm trying to stop them from happening
3: <laughs> I, I was gonna say i'll split the difference with you i'm an irish italian catholic from connecticut so oh, all
2: right there you oh you're right in the middle geographically too <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right
3: that's right <laughs> perfect um is are is, is SC Boyd a one and done project or is there more in, in the line for the, the threes company uh, trio here I have on the
4: so, so it was always imagined as a as sort of a trilogy um and uh yeah so we're we're working on the second book right now. Um and uh what we are all we've always been interested is We've created these characters uh, in the lemon and some of them, you know, and it's basically, it's like the lemon verse. So it's uh, like the next book exists in the same place that the lemon does, some of the characters overlap. There's sort of a, a really interesting twist that I won't give away um, because the prologue of the second book takes place at the same time of the prologue of the first book. Um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But the uh, you hear that, Ibrahim, do you hear that? Um, and uh, the but yeah, so we we always pictured that it would be this this greater world. And what we're really interested in is taking pieces of things uh, that have happened in the culture, um, like the Bourdain thing and sort of building stories around them so in the second book we take another thing that has happened in the culture um and sort of build a story around that that then overlaps with the first book
3: and is is that feeding the celebrity death industrial complex as well or
4: it's so hungry it's okay. so hungry mike
3: <laughs> it's a hungry is... hungry hippo exactly
4: yeah. which is another great 80s reference
3: yep <laughs> You know, one of the things I like to do is always get to know my guests through uh, pop culture. And um, you know, Alessandra, you already kicked us off. Uh, I'm curious. In addition to Three's Company, <laughs> favorite TV shows that you all watched as children. I'll let you go first, Ooh. Alessandra.
2: Oh my gosh, The Golden Girls.
3: Now, did you identify more with with one of the Golden Girls than the other?
2: Well, in my heart, I'm a Dorothy. Really? Um, I come from a family of Sophia's.
3: Okay. So, yeah. I mean, you're not giving me Blanche vibes, I'll tell you that.
2: <laughs> is it is it my my turtleneck? And... You're, way too, you're, way too,
3: you're way too covered up. <laughs> um, Kevin, how about you? Uh, favorite favorite TV. She doesn't have to be a sitcom. Anything you remember from childhood that you really were drawn to?
4: Yeah. Um I was a big fan of uh I mean so really gi joe uh really Mm. big fan of gi joe i really like the lessons at the end um uh because i you know my parents are divorced and so i had to look for other uh other other sort of other figures and i felt like uh i felt like you know uh some of the Cobra Commander and uh Snake Eyes <laughs> and uh some of those this, those guys could really really teach me something to bear the baroness me, exactly.
3: You know, uh, uh knowing is half the battle. <laughs> right. Did they I did guess. they teach you that in the MS yeah. program at Emerson? Yeah, they did it. The See, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah, lecture, number, saying. One, lecture yeah. number one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh Joe, how about you with that one? Favorite TV shows growing up? Yeah,
0: my favorite. I mean, the thing that I was obsessed with that was really influential as a kid was Get a Life. You remember Get a Life? Oh, Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, So so good. I was obsessed with that show um, just for the mix of like absolute absurdity. But there's like a like a darkness to it, too, that you get with that kind of protagonist, like sort of a Homer Simpson protagonist who's just Mm -hmm. like um kind of an idiot and like kind of does damage um without really knowing about it you know, like I, I forget what the term is there's like an agreed upon term for that type of character but I love that show um my brother and I used to watch it obsessively we would like tape it on the VHS and then like interestingly um when I came to New York I became friends with the creator of the show so like my hero as a kid Adam Resnick um he wrote a book when I was at Esquire and I met him through that and since then he and I have been pals and that's how Odenkirk got the book is through Resnick because Odenkirk, he might've worked on that show. Everybody worked at like Charlie Kaufman worked on that show. Um, they had an incredible writer's room. Incredible. in that
3: there, yeah. there was an episode of that show. Now I'm a little older than you, but um, there was an episode of that show. I remember watching it. Um, I, I was probably in high school. Uh, he builds a submarine in the bathroom and <laughs> yeah. they starts. They get locked. He and his dad get locked in it, right? And I just remember him start screaming, Squid, Squid. Yeah. <laughs> oh
0: god ridiculous. But then he goes insane and he gives the whole speech from Jaws <laughs> while sitting in the submarine. In like the voice, like the like a pirate voice. It's the funniest <laughs> oh, thing. Oh
1: god. So yeah,
3: good. I love that show. So good. How about Incredible. music? Uh, growing up. Um you know what what kind of music are you listening to? Joe, I'll go to you first since you answered that last one last.
0: Uh the big the first big one was the mighty, mighty boss tones. There are a lot of ska references in this in this book they came from kevin and i but um but that was the thing that just locked it locked it for me like the mix of punk and ska and jazz and stuff like that that was the first time i remember hearing something that really blew me away Uh, and from there i got into everything from jazz to reggae to whatever but but that i remember it was like a lightning bolt moment hearing one of those songs on the radio for the first time and just having my really having my head turned
3: very cool. How about you, Kevin? Were you
4: yeah. So honestly, I mean, the other half of the band uh, is the Irish rebel music. So uh, my family uh, is from Belfast, my like extended family. And I grew up, all my friends, like all of my best friends from home are Irish Catholic. And, you know, their names are like Eamon O'Brien, Casey Hurley, Tim Monahan, Matt Brady. Um, and so, uh we used to sit around with these cassette tapes, the Clancy brothers and Tommy Makem, um, And it's this Irish rebel music and you'd sing Finnegan's wake and Patriot game. And we would sit around with like, uh, you know, really crappy flat beer that we'd stolen from our other uh, siblings and like, you know, and talk shit about the queen and we didn't know what we were talking about. We were very pro IRA in elementary school, but, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that was a, uh, that was a really, and I, I, you know, it's something that I, that I still, that I still have. I have, I have a, a Clancy brothers uh, album right over there. That was a gift from
3: Alessandra actually on vinyl. That sounds like a very thoughtful gift to Alessandra. <laughs> um, how about you? What were you listening to uh, growing up?
2: Growing up? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Well, the first band I ever felt like truly, truly connected to was um, Jane's Addiction. And I discovered them when I was like 12, I think they had already broken up the first time. So I didn't get to see them until I was in my 20s. But, um, you know, it was just the perfect age, the perfect combination of like, just weirdness and power and like sexuality but not like horrible you know masculine like the super masculine sexuality of like the hair metal that was raining in the late 80s I mean my first okay maybe my first love truly is Axl Rose um my first concert ever was Guns N' Roses the Use Your Illusion Tour mm-hmm. and um so you know there's just this this like magnetism to a great front man and Perry Farrell certain it certainly is one of those but there was just this you know I was like 12 or 13 and so I was like reading these lyrics and there was just this like it was like punky poetry it was like erotic and just you know totally transporting um and I felt like wow like these are these are real kind of rock stars and I just fucking loved it
3: now you mentioned hair metal and masculinity in the same sentence and i have to, <laughs> having having grown up listening to a lot of that stuff um i don't necessarily equate you know makeup uh fishnet stockings and and big wigs uh with masculinity.
2: yeah but what about, the, attitude, the, pants? The, what about the pants
3: well what about, the, know, there the, is what about the,
2: <laughs> the cod piece <laughs> It's very it's very uh, crotch forward genre of music. Fair enough. (laughs) To put it that way.
3: Crotch forward. That's gonna be crotch forward. Yeah, yeah, that's
4: the pull quote here.
2: Yeah.
3: They shouldn't call it hair metal, I should call it crotch forward. Crotch
2: forward. Crotch rock. Crotch crotch rock. Crotch rock.
3: Yeah. There it is. I, I grew up listening to to like Iron Maiden. And now, oh, I listen nice. to Yacht, now I listen to Yacht Rock. Uh, I don't know what happened to me. My inner. Teenager. Well, you do
2: live in Connecticut. So That's true.
3: <laughs> and I'm wearing a blue vest with a pink shirt. So <laughs> yeah. uh, I was, feel like, you were born for that. I feel like a finance bro who just robbed a J. Crew. <laughs> <laughs> I know we do have to wrap up, um, but I'm uh, curious to know uh, where can people buy the lemon? I mean, the holidays are coming up. I always like to say books make great gifts. Uh, where can people pick up the lemon? Anywhere, yeah. That's wherever your, books are sold, yeah. yeah. Go to your, your
2: your local independent if you can. Yeah. You know, yeah, they, ask for it.
4: They've got it far and wide. As far as we we've we've even seen it in London, um, and uh, so yeah, no, it it should be selling at your local independent. If they don't have it, order it from there. And and uh, but Mike, before we go, I just wanted to show you this. I don't know if oh you can God. see that, but it is.
0: I can't believe your middle name is Newell. I know. Good God. Don't
4: don't remember that part, but just get the, all of that. So yeah, oh, I just want right. to point that up.
0: I'm just gonna call you Newell from now. on. Sorry,
4: that for the podcast listeners uh, and Ibrahim, that was my uh, <laughs> diploma, uh, my Master of Fine Arts uh, in Creative Writing from Emerson. Oh, is that um, what that is? That what? Yeah, it, it means it's a Master of Fine Arts. That's what it means. It doesn't mean.
2: <clears> Not the other mantle? things. It was a
4: receipt for $140,000. <laughs> <laughs> It can't be redeemed uh, for
3: anything. Yeah.
4: Just, this, this book didn't pay it off.
3: That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's just proof that K&A has an MFA.
4: Um, exactly.
3: Yeah. So, uh, I do want to also ask where, if people want to get in touch with you all, um, social media handles, we'll do this one at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure Kevin's is probably kamfa Emerson. I'm just kidding. Yes. Kind of. Yeah, I wish. Kevin, what's your any any social media people wanted to follow you? Um, yeah, like-
4: uh, the the most active is Kevin Alexander writes it in, on Instagram. Um, that's probably the one I use the most. I have a Twitter one, but, you know, Twitter is a, a cesspool and a hellhole. So I, I I only go on there like every two weeks to see if I've been canceled. So not yet.
3: <laughs> working uh- out. Joe, how about you? Social media handles you want to throw out there? Uh, Most people get to me through LinkedIn,
0: actually. So it's just Joe J O E Kohane. Jesus Christ! This is where business people hang out. (laughs) Just a bunch of fucking time wasters on Twitter. But I am by LinkedIn. I'm I'm regrettably on Twitter as well. Uh, It's just at Joe Kohane at J O E K E O H A N E. Um, But I barely use it. But you know, anyone's welcome to come at me. All right, Alessandra. (laughs)
2: Um, Instagram is the best way, Um, A-L-E-L-U-S-A-R-D-I, Ale Lusardi, Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Lusardi, but I'm never really on there, Um, although fun fact, apparently there is a um, porn star named something Lusardi, Linda Lusardi, I believe,
3: Lance Appar- Lustardy, maybe? apparently
2: she's <laughs> apparently she's british and apparently people sometimes like tag me or contact me thinking that i am her oh but i'm not
4: but you're not to be
3: clear
2: <laughs> just to be clear to be clear yeah I'm, i don't want to google her either so
3: well, uh Alessandra, Joe, and Kevin, or as I like to say, Jack, Janet, and Chrissy, thank you uh, so much. I, one of you uh, fellas has to, you know, fight over who's Jack and who's Janet. Um, But if- uh, Oh, just, I'm
2: definitely Chrissy.
3: Well, no, I get Chrissy. I guess you can be Janet. <laughs> what about Terry? Why
2: can't I be Jack?
3: You can be you know Jack. What? I'm Chrissy. I'm gonna get myself canceled here. Um, yeah. Just being so heteronormative <laughs> um, with my blue vest, but I do want to thank you all for uh, taking the time to uh, let me thank uncork you your so stories. Much. This was a yeah. lot of this was a pleasure. This yeah, was so much fun.
2: Much. Thank you so
1: Great. much. Thanks for listening to uncorking a story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.